Acts 23. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, please find one under a seat in front of you and turn with us there. Acts 23 is where we find ourselves today continuing to look at the ministry of Paul. As we've looked at the last couple of times, his last missionary journey has now completed. He finds himself in Jerusalem. As we have discussed, the Holy Spirit has been guiding him and leading him to, to Jerusalem at this time, but also telling him that trials, tribulations, chains, afflictions will be awaiting him there. And just as the Holy Spirit prepared him for, that's what he finds. We mentioned that Paul has gotten to Jerusalem. He's been falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into an area that Gentiles were not allowed to go, past the court of the Gentiles into the court of women up on the Temple Mount. Not a true accusation whatsoever, but the crowd buys into it, and Paul is there, and this riot breaks out. So much so that the Roman officials, the Roman guard has to get involved or Paul would have been beaten to death right there in the court of the Gentiles. The mob was going crazy. The soldiers actually had to lift him up and carry him out. We talked about that Paul then got to the top of the stairs as they're taking him to the praetorium. He says, can I address the crowd? The, the captain of the guard allows him to and he starts sharing again his heart and the gospel message. And when he got to the point where he again mentioned that God had sent him to the Gentiles, the riot breaks out again. The commander then has Paul taken inside and was going to have him scourged in order to get more and extract more information out about from him as to what is going on with all of this. Paul lets him know he's a Roman. He understands that as a Roman, he can't be scourged. So the, the captain says, okay, all right, hang on a second. Didn't know you were a Roman. Because of all of that, now we find ourselves where we begin today. This is the next day after all of that takes place and the, Paul is being placed before the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish leaders, in order to talk through all of this so that the commander can get to the bottom of everything that's going on. Now, Paul has spent the evening, no doubt, in prayer, praying about this opportunity Paul has spent the evening, no doubt, playing through all of the possible scenarios in his mind as to how this can go. Have any of you ever had a, a big meeting the next day or an opportunity to, to do something that's very important and that the next morning and you, you spend a lot of time preparing, thinking through what you're going to say? No doubt rehearsing even the first couple of lines you might say. I don't have any doubt that Paul was doing that. Perhaps even had the first line, okay, this is how I'm going to start it out. And this is as we start out now in Acts chapter 23, Paul before them, notice it says, verse 1, Paul looking intently at the council, at the Sanhedrin that are gathered there, and he said, brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I don't know how many scenarios Paul ran through his mind. I can guarantee you this wasn't one of them. <laughs> this is not how he planned this whole thing was going to go down. 
It's right out of the gate. Now, I don't know about you. Has that ever happened? You plan something. You think, man, this is going to be a great opportunity. This is going to be perfect. Maybe, maybe even you've just come through that where you've gone to Christmas or Thanksgiving with some relatives and you were thinking, okay, here's my opportunity to share the gospel. And you pray about it and you have it all lined out as to how it's going to go. And you start to sign this, ah, don't give me any of that God stuff. Boom. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, everything goes totally different. Well, we see that no doubt happening here with Paul. The high priest here, Ananias, this is actually the third Ananias that we've come across in the book of Acts. If you'll remember back in chapter five, the husband of Sapphira, the one who sold some property, said that they gave all of the money to the church, but withheld some. And the problem was not that they didn't give everything. The problem was that they were trying to be, present themselves as something more holy. And, and Paul, Peter calls them out lying to the Holy Spirit. We saw that whole story. They were both struck dead there. Little lesson there. Chapter 5, that Ananias. Believer, we see another Ananias in chapter 9, a believer in Damascus. Paul, that is where he is headed when he meets Jesus and he's blinded there on the road. When he becomes a believer, Ananias is the one who prays for him. His sight is restored, that Ananias. Well, here we're introduced to a third Ananias. He's the high priest. At this time, he will be the high priest for a period of 12 years. He followed Annas and Caiaphas, who were high priests at the time of, of Jesus. We don't know a whole lot about him from biblical sources, certainly, but other Jewish sources, Josephus tells us that he was insolent, he was hot-tempered, profane, and greedy. Not a real good resume. He was, a matter of fact, the, the Jewish people had no love for him. Matter of fact, in 66 AD, when the riot takes place, when they come against Rome, Jews actually kill him. But he is the one who is here, and when he hears this statement of Paul, he orders those that are standing around him, hit him on the mouth. And they, no doubt, strike him. Paul's, Paul responds, you whitewashed wall. Now to us, we might be, well, ooh, <laughs> what does that mean? Well, that was, a, that was a very, very much a, an insult, a right-in-your-face statement. Jesus uses this same terminology when he speaks to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. A whitewashed wall, a whitewashed tomb, they would have been all over the place at this time. This was during the Feast of Pentecost, if you'll remember. That's why Paul was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. And when they would have these feasts, the tombs are all around outside Jerusalem. And they would go and they would, they would paint the outside of the tombs white. And that's, that was, you know, in preparation for the for the, the feast. And that's what he's saying. You look great on the outside, but inside you're a hypocrite. Because you're trying me according to the law, yet you're breaking the law yourself by having me struck before I'm condemned. Calling him out with that. But notice Paul's response. Notice immediately that he receives the rebuke that comes. 
He's rebuked right away by, by some people that are standing around that say, you can't talk that way to the high priest. And Paul's response wasn't, hey, who are you to rebuke me? Paul's response was, oh my goodness, you're right. And in that, there's a great lesson for all of us too, because God can use whoever or whatever he desires to rebuke any one of us if we step, if we step out of line, if we need correction. Sometimes we can say, well, I can't receive correction from that person or that person. God can use anyone. God used a donkey to correct Balaam in the Old Testament. So, But in this, we see the rebuke that comes, and Paul receives it, because bottom line, we know that statement, right? Two wrongs don't make a right. That's, that's, not, that's, that's not in the Bible anywhere, but it's certainly a biblical principle. As a matter of fact, Augustine was quoted as saying, if you are suffering from a bad man's injustice, forgive him lest there be two bad men. We can fall into that area of responding and lashing out in anger, harboring bitterness and resentment, fighting back. And when Paul was presented with that, we see his response. He repents. He said, oh, I wasn't aware. I didn't, I didn't know. And some look at that and say that Paul had a little sarcastic streak in him, and I'd like to believe that that's what it was because I have that same thing. So I could say, you know, hey, I can relate to Paul saying that. You know, yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize it was the high priest because the high priest wouldn't say something like that. You know, that, but that's not Paul here. See, Paul also is a man of integrity and honesty. And he said, I didn't know. That means he didn't know. And we don't understand all of the pieces behind that. Some, some suggest it was because Paul, we, there's some biblical evidence that Paul suffered from some problems with his eyes, maybe didn't recognize, maybe in all of the commotion, maybe he didn't know where the order came from. We don't know for sure, but Paul, Paul repents. Paul is certainly immediately, as this is going on, no doubt wishing things were different. Paul, Peter writes, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Again, that is always our example is the Lord Jesus, who was perfect, sinless, Deserved nothing of what came from him, came to him. Deserved no one to revile him or to persecute him. Yet when that came to him, set an example for us, did not revile in return, did not utter threats, but entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. And no doubt, I believe Paul, this going right through his heart through all of this, man, I've, I've totally blown this. Uh, can, can we do this all over? Ever want that? Do over, restart, reset, mulligan, he tries to, tries to quickly change this and, and get to a different angle. Look, verse 6. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged all of them. 
And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Again, he tries, tries a different angle. <laughs> let, me, let me jump off of this whole thing. Let me jump over, jump over here. He notices that some are Pharisees, some Sadducees. Paul had, says, I'm a Pharisee. Paul, a Pharisee. The difference between the two are many, but boil it right down. The Pharisees believed in everything that the word of God said. They believed it all to be true. The Sadducees strictly looked at certain things and they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in, in eternal life. They didn't believe anything, anything like that, which is why they are Sadducee. That's how you can remember that. But Paul now identifying with the Pharisees in the group says, I am a Pharisee. I, I, I am one who believes all that you believe. I believe in the resurrection and I believe with all that I'm standing here that Paul was wanting to get to the point was, now I understand it fully though. I understand the resurrection and, and how we attain to that. No doubt trying to get to where he gets eventually when he writes the book of Philippians in Philippians chapter 3 where he says, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I have, according to the law, blameless. But I count all of that to be garbage compared to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I understand that the resurrection, eternal life, comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. And I believe Paul's trying to, to take this angle now to get to that point. But it goes from bad to worse. This argument breaks out now. He's thinking, I got an opportunity here. Well, it just, again, backfires. Everything starts going crazy. It says a great dissension breaks out. That that means that there, there was a great fight that breaks out amongst them, so much so that notice the Roman guards had to be dispatched to grab Paul out of there because he was about to be torn apart. Guys, the important thing to understand as we move through this, this next section here is a reminder of Paul's heart in this. Paul's heart for the Jewish people. Paul's heart for those that he was addressing there in that group, the leaders, the Jewish leaders. He said in Romans chapter 9, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul makes a statement in that that says, if it were possible, I would take an eternity in damnation in hell if my Jewish brethren could be saved. And it's not just a statement that he makes just matter-of-factly. He sets it all up by saying, the Holy Spirit is my witness. This is, this is the absolute truth. That's Paul's heart. And every time I read that, it amazes me. It amazes me. Because in all seriousness, I love you guys. 
But to say that I would exchange my salvation for yours? I just praise the Lord. We can all be saved. That's just, that's, I just, I love that fact. But that's Paul's heart. And so I want, I want us to understand that as we now understand that after this has taken place, the day before, he has thousands listening to him and a riot breaks out. Here he has the Jewish leaders before him and a riot breaks out. No evidence that anybody got saved. If anything, they all dug their heels in harder against him and the message that he's bringing. And now he's back in his cell. No doubt with his perspective of, man, I blew it. I couldn't have had a better opportunity. And I totally blew it. I, I even remember telling Jesus, I'm perfect for this job. And look at what I did with it. I totally messed this whole thing up. If only I would have, if only I would have had more grace when he struck me on the mouth. If only I would have been like Jesus in that moment and I wouldn't have reviled and fought back. If only I would have said this. If only I would have said or done that. Just imagine yourself in that situation. Maybe you, maybe you have been. Maybe you are. Maybe you are in that spot in your life that says, man, God gave me a great opportunity and I just blew it. I've totally blown it. Well, verse 11 speaks to any of you in that situation and certainly we see how it ministers to Paul. It says, but on the night immediately following, which means that evening, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage. For you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. You see, Paul's perspective, and we can get into that too, is, man, I've totally blown it. God probably wants nothing to do with me anymore. He's probably just pushed me off to the side. But here we see Jesus appearing to Paul, standing right next to him. Now, we don't know if Paul could see him or if he just had this overwhelming sense that the Lord was right there. But guys, I'm here to tell you right now, I don't care where you are, who you are, what you've done, the Lord is with you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is in you. He promised that he will never leave us and never forsake us. And he speaks to Paul, no doubt speaking directly, even directly to his heart, where he's sitting there again, totally broken, totally discouraged, and notice he says, take courage. Now, it's interesting doing a little word study on that. Take courage, it's actually one Greek word, and it's used seven times in the New Testament, every time by Jesus, and every time right after or just before he's going to do something. Take courage, Paul. One of those instances is in John 16, where he says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Take courage. 
And guys, those are words that we all need to hear. Every one of us. Because Paul is facing something impossible ahead of him. It's only through supernatural power that it's going to see. And we're going to see how God is ahead and moving and going through all of this. But guys, bottom line, every one of us, if we're following the Lord and his directions for us, are going to need supernatural help in this. And we're going to, you might be in again in that situation where it says, I've blown it. God can't use me anymore. And you might feel that prompting in you that says, God, take courage, move forward. You say, I can't. His commands are his enablements. As you step out in faith, you will find what you need to follow what it is that he's calling you to do. Take courage. Notice he also then says, you have. You've solemnly witnessed to my cause. You have done what I asked you to do, Paul. You were my witness in Jerusalem. See, here's the thing, guys. We are called to obedience. So often we measure our success in pleasing God by the results. God's, God's not concerned with the results because that's his job. God calls us to be obedient. And when we simply obey what it is that he tells us to do, he is pleased. And we see that here with Paul. You've been obedient. You've done what I asked you to do here in Jerusalem. And because of that, guess what? You're going to do it again. You're not done, Paul. I have not put you away. I am, I am not pushing you off to the side. I have work for you to do. You have been my witness. You will be my witness. You're going to Rome. Paul always wanted to go to Rome. But he didn't dream about the way he's going to get there. But God has a plan to get him to Rome. All right. I want every, every believer here right now to do this. Breathe in. And breathe out. Okay, if you just did that, take courage because God's not done with you yet. If you still are breathing... God has something for you to do. And let me let you in on something. It's way beyond what you can do on your own. But that's why we're here. And that's why we need to take courage. Because he either has done something or he's about to do something. And we're a part of it. Might not be like we think it's going to be. Matter of fact, it probably won't be. I wonder what Paul was thinking when he, when he sensed, here's the Lord right beside me. I've been in prison before, and you know, one time they busted me out. The doors just flew open, all this kind of stuff. wonder what's going to happen. How, how are we going to get out of this now, Lord? See, the, problem, the thing was, Jesus wasn't there to spring him out. He was there to spur him on. Paul will remain a prisoner the rest of his life. But a prisoner not of Rome prisoner of the Lord Jesus, and all the way through, serving God to the very end. Well, here's that, here's that promise, right? God there, right there with him, the Lord saying, you will be my witness in Rome. Verse 12, when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath saying, that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. 
They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, lead this young man to the commander for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner came to me or came to me or called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately. What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though you were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. Verse 23, and he called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. This as we look at this again, right on the heels of what what. The Lord told Paul, we see this conspiracy that's coming, the enemies of Paul planning to, to kill him, to stop whatever it is that God is trying to do with him. And guys, I love this as we look at this because it just reinforces the fact that if God is for us, who could be against us? And they come against us, their plans will have no chance of succeeding. I, I heard a quote, and I tried to find who it was, so I'm, I'm not going to get it exactly because I couldn't find the quote, so I'm going to paraphrase, basically saying that the man of God in the will of God is invincible until God calls him home. And there's, there's absolute truth to that. With If God is for me, who could be against me? The, the creator of the universe, the God of angel armies, is on our side. The sovereign God. And here we see it doesn't matter what they're trying to do. Notice they, it says they take, an, they take a, an oath. Literally, they're placing themselves under a curse. The, the word there, the Greek word anathema, is what they're taking themselves under, that it's saying, if this doesn't happen, we die. Pretty bold statement. Now, there is something in here, though, that I want to bring to us, even as believers. I hope that we would never take an oath like that. <laughs> but we can also act, because that's an arrogant thing to say, is it not? But the Bible tells us that even as believers, we have to be careful because we can act in that same arrogance. Paul says this in James chapter 4. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting 
is evil. Now, James, hear this. He's not speaking against planning. He's not speaking against preparing for the future. What he's saying, and this is something we all need to embrace as Christians because we can all easily fall into this, is that God needs to be God of everything in our lives. He's the sovereign creator of the universe. He needs to be in control of everything in our lives, not just our spiritual life. It's easy for us, even as believers, to compartmentalize God. Well, we give God Sunday mornings. We give him our prayer time, our devotional time in the morning. But when I get in my car and go to work, that's my time. When I get to work and I'm doing this or I'm doing that, I'm engaging in this, I'm doing those types of things, I do it my way. When it comes time for investing or planning or doing all of this, I leave God out of that equation. And the Bible is clear that says that is arrogant of us to say that, to do that. And by the way, just throwing, hey, if God wills, onto the end of it, Lord willing is not a cliche, guys. It needs to be our compass. We need to follow what the Lord wills and desires for our lives. Again, anything else, he says, is evil. Well, we see, though, back to our story, it doesn't matter what they're trying to do. God is moving. And I love how this whole thing plays out because writing this all out, we wouldn't have anticipated that this is how it would play out. God uses a little boy. He uses Paul's nephew, who happens to hear of this plot, and he goes and he runs and he tells Paul. Paul says, go to one of the centurions. The centurion takes him to the captain. Here's this little boy. How do we know he's a little boy? The word there could mean anywhere from a, from a young boy to a teenager, but it says the commander took him by the hand, took him by the side, and said, all right, tell me what you have to say. Two things. Young people, you're never too young to be used by the Lord. Be obedient to what he has for you. If he tells you to move, move. Be obedient to what he says. The rest of us, don't discount something that's said just because it's coming from a youth. This message is going to make it all the way to the governor of Judea. His name is Felix. We're going to meet him in a minute. But I also, I also love this. God's power and his sense of humor. Notice, the commander says, get two hundred soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen, 470 trained vicious warriors against 40 hungry Jewish guys. <laughs> and Paul gets to ride a horse the whole way. He doesn't even have to walk. I just love God how he by the way, we never hear of these 40 guys again. I'm wondering, probably the first thing they had to eat was a whole lot of pride. But verse 25, it tells us that this commander, it says that he wrote a letter having this form, Claudius Lysias, the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came upon I came to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Isn't that interesting? You've been following along in our study. Isn't it funny how we twist history or twist things that happen to make ourselves look good? This is the same guy that was going to have Paul scourged, found out he was a Roman, 
And it's a good thing, because if he'd have had Paul scourged as a Roman and later found out, this guy would have been scourged himself. That's the punishment for bringing that upon a Roman. But he says, after finding out he was a Roman, I rescued him. But anyway, wanting to ascertain the charge for which he was accusing, they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring their charges against him before you and their walking. Hmm. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antiparatus. That's a place about halfway between Jerusalem and Caesarea. On the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he had read it, he asked from which province he was, and when he learned it was from, he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Here we're introduced to Felix. He's the governor, as I mentioned, of Judea. He serves in this capacity for about eight years up until 60 AD. Um, interesting little history about him because we're going to see him over the next couple of chapters. But he was born a slave. But he was born a slave. His mother was the slave of Claudius's mother. Claudius will eventually become Caesar. So this man Felix, his brother Paulus, they grow up with Claudius. And later on, when Claudius becomes Caesar, they're granted their freedom and even given posts in the Roman Empire. And here we see Felix in, as governor of Judea. We know that he was an oppressive tyrant, cruel. And we'll learn a little bit more about him as we study because Paul is going to spend the next two years here in Caesarea, again, under arrest, Two years in Caesarea. Now, if you go to Israel, that's on our first day, on our first day of our tour, we stop here in Caesarea. We stand in the, in the amphitheater where Paul makes his address that we'll see in coming weeks as we study through. We stand in Herod's palace where Paul, it says, he's kept in Herod's praetorium. That's in his, in his palace area. Not, no, no doubt, probably not in the formal living room he's hanging out, but in, a, in an area of holding there in this place. And if you've been there, you know how beautiful it is. Right on the Mediterranean coast, beautiful place. Now, Paul's not on vacation, but you can pick a whole lot of worse places to be in prison than <laughs> Caesarea. Paul's going to spend two years there and we'll pick up our study in chapter 24 next time. But in the moments that we have left this morning, I want to go back to verse 1 of our study today in chapter 23, verse 1. Paul's incredible statement when we take a look at it. This is how he begins as he's speaking to the Sanhedrin. He says, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. An amazing statement that's made. And we see how it much, must have really touched a sore spot with Ananias because after that statement's made, he said, slug that guy in the mouth. I did a, a word study on this and again, study through conscience. Because it's one of those words that probably every one of us in the room would say, I know what, what a conscience is. 
And then when you, if you would have to define it or explain it to somebody, hmm, it's difficult. I'll tell you one of the, a couple of things that I can tell you for sure that a conscience is. Conscience, guys, is a gift from God. It's one of those things that proves there's a creator. I mean, that's one of the things, one of the many, 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 many things that evolutionists can't explain how we have a conscience. We, we're the only ones of all of creation, everything. Humans are the only ones with a conscience. Your dog does not have a conscience. You might think he does, he doesn't. Well, how come they act that way when they do something that they, they know is wrong? Because you punished them before for doing it. That's why it's learned behavior. It's not a conscience. This word here, conscience, is used 30 times in the New Testament, twice in Acts, quoting Paul, 21 times in Paul's letters, he uses this word conscience. Three times Peter uses it in 1 Peter, and the other four are in the book of Hebrews. Paul uses this word to speak of conscience in Romans chapter 2, that it's not just something that believers have. Everyone is given a conscience. For when, it says in chapter 2, verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are the law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Their conscience. The, the God writing the law in their hearts. Knowing that they're doing something right or wrong based on what God has written in their hearts. But interestingly, when we go to the real source, because a whole lot of people have a whole lot of opinions about conscience, if we go to the source of the one who gave us our conscience, God, we see that the Bible tells us that our consciences can be good or bad. They can be clear or distorted. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that our consciences can be seared. What does that mean? Well, you know what happens when, if you have ever burned yourself. That area that is burned, seared, burned badly, later on doesn't have the same feeling that it had before. And, and we can have our consciences seared, deceiving even. It can, he writes in Titus, our consciences can be defiled. So understanding all of that, it would be silly to follow the statement that probably all of us have heard before, let your conscience be your guide. Right? We've, we've heard that. Some might even think it's in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. You know who said, let your conscience be your guide? Jiminy Cricket said it to Pinocchio. <laughs> Enough said. Take that out of anything, any truth that governs your life. <laughs> Guys, the Holy Spirit, as believers, the Holy Spirit and truth need to be our guide. Not culture not tradition, and certainly not our flesh. But I want to go with you. If you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Again, I mentioned the author of Hebrews uses this word. And I, I want to come back to this because Paul said, I have a perfectly clean conscience 
before God. What is the key to a perfectly clean conscience? Let me tell you right up, it's not what Mark Twain said. Mark Twain said the key to a perfectly clean conscience is a bad memory. That's not it. <laughs> Paul was able to stand there and say that and say it truthfully because Paul had an understanding of grace and mercy and conviction and repentance. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 9 will spend the first seven verses, and I'll summarize it real quickly, speaking of the temple, the tabernacle, the, the, the first area of that, the holy place, where there was the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. But then there was the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. In the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. There was only one man, the high priest, who was able to go one time a year into the Holy of Holies with, with the sacrifice of bringing blood, the blood of a sacrifice in there to place it on the one man one time a year. In the Ark of the Covenant, he explains in the first few verses there, a golden bowl of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, a copy of the Ten Commandments showing God's great faithfulness, but also illustrating man's sinfulness. They would look at that, understand the golden bowl of manna is in their God providing for them, but noting also that they complained about it every day. You've given us this manna, manna for the morning, manna, 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 manna. Can't we have any, can't we have some meat to eat? Aaron's rod that budded, speaking of the rebellious heart. Korah leading a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And God said, let's put their, put their staffs down, their sticks, that they walk, their walking sticks down. I'll show you who's mine. The next day they come in, Aaron's rod, almond blossoms all over the place off of a dead stick. They put that in there. Again, God's amazing miracles, but a rebellious heart. A copy of the Ten Commandments. Why a copy? Because the originals were destroyed. Is when Moses came down with the originals, the law, he saw idolatry, only a few days gone, smashes them, showing their, again, sinfulness. But on top of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. And that is where the blood from the sacrifice is brought. The high priest would take off his high priestly robes, put on a simple white robe, and go in on this, on this day, once a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and place the blood on the, on the mercy seat. He would go back out, put on his priestly robes again. Now with that as a setup, we, get, we come to verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 9. He says, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper, notice, perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, reg regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Guys, here, again, our conscience, going all the way back to this, God gives us our conscience, every one of us given a conscience, to know that we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. Bottom line is, 
why do all, every why does every human being that's ever been born, ever lived, ever feel guilt? The simple answer, because we're guilty. And so when we move forward that, we try to find ways to deal with that guilt. We can, the world says, well, go, go find a good psychiatrist. Find, you know, deal with it that way. Others will say, well, do this, do that, do these ritual things. And here the author is saying it doesn't matter. All of, even if you follow these rituals perfectly, they were never designed to take away the guilt, to take away the sin. They were a symbol pointing forward. Guys, and here's where it gets to it right here. All of history revolves around one moment. All of history revolves around what he speaks of here, this time of reformation. Notice, until the time of reformation. And that's not speaking of Martin Luther. That's speaking of when Jesus went to the cross. That is pointing to that time. That word reformation there means to make straight. A time when everything crooked is made straight. He continues, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest for, for the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serving the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. He sets the first part of chapter 9 up speaking of, of the tabernacle, the physical earthly tabernacle. But then he says, the greater high priest, Jesus enters the greater temple in heaven with a greater sacrifice, his own blood. Guys, it's all, all of the other things, symbolic. They didn't even realize it was symbolic, but it all pointed to when the priest would take off the outer robes, his priestly robes, and put on the simple garments. Jesus stepping off his throne in heaven, taking off, if you would, those royal garments and becoming one of us. Living a perfect, sinless life, dying on the cross, giving that sacrifice of his blood on our behalf, and now, risen from the dead, seated again on his throne. Beautiful picture. And we see here, again, describing here in great de detail, and, and understand what this is saying, guys. An imperfect sacrifice offered a billion times is not enough. But a perfect sacrifice offered once is more than enough. Through his blood, once for all, that sacrifice paid the penalty for every sin ever committed by everyone. The ransom has been fully paid. 
But the bottom line is, and this is where I want to come to with this, because that, that to have that perfectly clean conscience, we need to understand and embrace that truth. That our sin debt has been completely paid. Absolutely, 100%. And as we, as Christians, we, when we sin, when we go along, we need to understand the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer and you come under conviction of sin, that's the Holy Spirit. You deal with it right now. You repent. You stand blameless before a holy and righteous God. You see, again, the beautiful picture of the ark Inside, complaining, rebellion, sin. As believers, God doesn't meet us there. He meets us at the mercy seat where Jesus poured out his blood for us. See, we don't serve him. We don't worship him in order to have a clean conscience. We do because he's given us one. We don't do those things to earn his favor. We do those things because we have his favor. We don't worship, serve to pay a debt. We do it because the debt's been paid. We stand here today, the first day of a new year. And I, I can't think of a better way to start the new year than every single one of us being able to say, I have a perfectly clean conscience before God. And so if you're here today and you have never taken that step, you've never surrendered your life fully to God, you know because you feel the guilt. You're still carrying the guilt and the shame of your sin. You might feel that you're, you're here today because you got to be here today in order to make God happy with you. I'm here to tell you there's nothing that would bring more joy to him right now than you to finally surrender and give your life to him. Trust once and for all in his completed work on the cross for you. You also might be here today and you look in the rearview mirror of 2016, 2015, maybe several years in the past, and you say, you know, a long time ago I gave my life to Jesus, but it's been a long time since I walked with him. I've walked away, put on this charade. I'm I got a whole bunch of people believe in everything's good, but I know it's not. Today, he wants to say, I want to give you a perfectly clean conscience, but it comes back to repentance as the Holy Spirit lays that on our heart. And for, for the rest of us, walking with the Lord, serving the Lord, loving the Lord, re you realize that. Let's go before him now, even as we worship and we prepare for communion together, that says, Lord, search me. Show me if there's anything in me that doesn't please you. And right now, I want to clear that debt. I want to, Lord, I just come back to you again. Would you please stand and pray with me? I want to invite any one of you as we, as we prepare for communion. I'm going to be over, over here by the Christmas tree over, on, over here. And if this morning the Lord's working on your heart, and you realize you've never made that commitment. You've never, you've never stepped forward. Or you want to recommit your life to the Lord. I want, would you meet me over there by the tree? And I'd just like an opportunity to pray with you. Let's pray together now. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the reality that is again before us. That you, our perfect high priest, 
entered the holiest of places in heaven with the perfect sacrifice for us. That you willingly stepped off your throne, took on our form, became one of us, and then gave your life in exchange for us. Lord Jesus, we are amazed, eternally grateful, and Lord, that is why we worship you. And Lord, our desire is that you would use us in this coming year. Lord, my prayer right now is for any of those here this morning, maybe those watching online, that feel that you are done with them, that they've had their chance and they've blown it. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts as you did to Paul's. Let them know right now that that is a lie from the enemy. Speak to their hearts. Speak to our hearts, Lord. We can take courage because you're, you're about to do something and we know it. Lord, we want to be used by you. So Lord, would you reveal anything in our lives that is not pleasing to you? Anything in our lives that we need to deal with right now? And we give that to you. Lord Jesus, have your way. It's in your name we pray.